beautiful people and welcome back to another episode of Wildcard Conversations, my little podcast where I pull random cards with thought-provoking questions for my wonderful guests. I am your host Katja Bavendam and I am so grateful for the diverse group of friends, acquaintances and strangers who come on here with open hearts and minds. What they all have in common is that they have wisdom to share, knowledge to drop, stories to tell and I am so happy to hold space for them, listen to them, sing their praises, cry and laugh with them, and share a little bit of myself as we go along. On today's episode, I am joined by the man, the myth, the legend, Mike from New York, my pandemic coffee shop buddy whose stories I could listen to for hours and hours and hours. If you love New York City, you're going to love this man and this episode. Mike talks about growing up in the village in the 60s and 70s, the appreciation he gained for his parents later in life, his excursion into the world of filthy rich people, the importance of making friends, especially during hard times, and how 12 steps led him to a life beyond his wildest dreams. It was such a treat to have him on, and I might have gotten choked up a couple of times while listening back. As always, I hope you find joy or value or both in this episode. I'm playing around with a slightly different format today with a short outro at the end, so stay tuned for that. But for now, thank you so much for listening. And without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the one and only Mike from New York. And we're on. Mike from New York, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Katja, how are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to see you. You got on Zoom for me. You just shared with me that You've only ever been on Zoom once or twice for yoga class. So this is your first podcast. I'm very excited yes. that you're doing this. And as always, give the listeners a little context on how we know each other. We were coffee shop buddies. I think we met during the pandemic when the local mm -hmm. coffee shop in Queens was sort of a safe haven for people to find some sort of community and talk to other people and not just sit in our boxes depressed. So that's where I met you. And we just kept talking more and more and more and more. And I like to think we became friends. And mm -hmm. you took me out for lunch before I left New York. You also have a getaway from the city in Asheville, North Carolina. So maybe that'll come up today. I was always happy to see you and I'm happy you're here now. So thanks for doing this. You're welcome. You're welcome. Can I call you Cat? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So I don't call you Ketchup or something. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so you remember that people struggle with my name. Cat is totally fine. Do you want to jump right into our little question here? Yeah, unless you have something to say, like, you know, I'm ready to go. Unless you have something to add to the intro before we got into it. Yeah, the coffee shop saved my life, you know, because there was nothing to do. And I was a little scared, like everyone else, you know, when it hit. It's exactly three years ago. I was a little taken back for about two weeks. And then I'm like, I got, you know. I got to get out of here or, you know, that's going to kill me in my sleep or something. We got to, you know, I got to get out of the house. And I just went to the coffee shop and uh, some mornings it was just me and Natasha and then people like you would show up with the dogs. It was cool. It was great. And we started having music. It was great. And I think I was always confused on what your 
your function was with the coffee shop because it almost <laughs> felt like you you were an employee because you were always there early and helping out but you were really just a retired guy being friendly and helpful right yeah yes i'll tell you a, a little of the story like i started stopping there when i was working when i was driving for the rich guy i would stop there for coffee because they do have great coffee And then talking to Natasha, I found out she was born in Greenwich Village, and that's where I was born. So that was a little bond right off the bat. And then I knew her for a few months, and then, bing, you know, lockdown, you know. So she was a trooper. She stayed open every single day of the pandemic. So I would go. And then as things started, you know, easing a little, I, I was in Central Park a lot on my bike, and I would see these musicians practicing. You know, no one's out, really. And I asked them if they wanted to play at a coffee shop in uh, Queens. We'll pay them a little and tips. And they were like, sure, you know. And then it was great. The people were coming out of their homes, and the, you've seen it, right? The street would be full, like. People started volunteering to play, you know. So I kind of was in charge of that little scene. So and you Natasha were once said to me, "I'll pay you," and I said, "No, nah, if you do that, it won't be fun anymore." And then here I am. <laughs> you were the mastermind behind the sidewalk concerts in front of Chateau Le Wolf, which is the coffee shop we're talking about. And Natasha, you've mentioned a couple of times, is the wonderful owner. Uh, yes, the first people that played approached Natasha and volunteered, and the, she got a good crowd. So then I started asking people I thought were good and that I met in the park. Before you know it, we had a lineup, you know, we had 10 people performing, you know, at different times. And we would fill Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And it really made the pandemic, I hate to say it, fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's sort of that quintessential special thing about New York, people coming together, strangers coming together, yes. especially during hard times, because during good times, New Yorkers can be a little standoffish. I always say New Yorkers are not nice, but they're kind, especially when it matters. So that kind of story makes me miss New York a little bit. Yeah, well, you're going to see people are different down there. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. St. Pete does have a nice vibe, too. And there are a lot of colorful, fun people here, too. But it's not quite like it. Yeah, this New York is a special place. It's one of those special places. So you were born in the West Village in approximately what decade? 1956. When I got to fill out the form online, I got to scroll a little bit. <laughs> What was life like for a boy growing up in the West Village, in the heart of Manhattan, in the 60s and 70s? It was wild. We were poor. Like, I mean, we weren't poor, like welfare poor, but we lived. Uh, I had two sisters and a brother, and there were so six of us. And we lived in a 500 square foot tenement apartment. And... We didn't know, you know, that's the way we lived. We had bunk beds and two sets of bunk beds. And that's the way I grew up. So it was like, get out of the house. 
my mother would throw me out of the house. You know, it was different then. And so I kind of grew up on the street at Greenwich Village. I mean, just imagine. <laughs> imagine what could happen there. <laughs> I was no angel. It's hard to be a saint in the city, you know. I got in a lot of trouble and stuff, but here I am today, a model citizen. <laughs> of course you are a model citizen. What is there a favorite, either positive or the biggest trouble you've ever gotten yourself into, a memory from your youth running the streets of New York that stands out to you? Ooh, there's some things I would never talk about. It wasn't all fun and games, you know. In my little neighborhood where, you know, what do you know, a few hundred kids and stuff. I know 10 to 15 people died of drugs and violence. Another 15 to 20 died of AIDS. I was just thinking uh, about COVID, three-year anniversary. I know, I know of two people that died. I didn't know them. I know tons of people that died of AIDS and stuff. It was a different world. I don't want to say we were tougher, but people weren't as sensitive. Like you just, that's the way it was and you dealt with it. I like to say I might be like one of the poor, the last poor white guys to grow up on Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> I think just hearing you say you grew up poor in the West Village, I think most people today who either live in New York or visit New York, know the West Village as the place where Sex and the City was filmed and where the oh, yeah. the, where the million dollar homes are and where the celebrities hang out and it's the cutest neighborhood and it's where you go for dinner and where you get cute. So to just hear that it wasn't always like that, it's just an interesting perspective. Oh no, it wasn't. I have pictures to prove it. I don't know if I've ever showed them to you someday. <laughs> So you were in the in the West Village until when? What was your journey through the different neighborhoods of New York? And how did you end up being an upstanding model citizen living in Queens now? I kind of moved out like 19 and two other guys. We had an apartment. My friend's mother moved to France and the apartment was there. And after a year of that, We didn't have electricity. We didn't have a phone. <laughs> we didn't pay the bills. <laughs> we paid the rent, but we had nothing. And then that didn't last too long. And then I went back home. And then I moved in with my girlfriend. And then a couple of years later, she had a baby. And I couldn't afford a bigger apartment in Greenwich Village because it started to change. At the end of the 70s, it started to change. A fancy restaurant moved into the West Village. It was called the Black Sheep Restaurant. And that was the first one, you know, first fancy restaurant west of Hudson Street. And uh, then it started to change. So I couldn't afford a two-bedroom apartment. So I spun the dial and picked Astoria in 1982. I moved to Astoria. And then the whole journey, I got divorced, I lived all over Astoria, five different neighborhoods in Astoria. And then I moved back to Greenwich Village for a few years, and then I got married again. It's been a wild ride. It's been cool. I don't think I was aware of that, that really your two main homes in New York have really only been the West Village and Astoria. And Astoria is big. 
I don't even know how many people live in Astoria, but I think it's important for context for people who have never been to New York or don't know New York. Queens is a huge, huge, huge borough with what, 4 million people alone in Queens? Yeah, there's, or something there's like that. about 70,000 in Astoria. Yeah, so that's an average, you know, small size city anywhere else city. in yeah. the world. So, and. <laughs> And Astoria has so many different, it's it's traditionally most people think of it as Greek, but what I experienced when I moved to Astoria was, was true, true diversity. If you had plopped me in the streets of Astoria and I had not known what kind of neighborhood I'm in, I wouldn't have known because you saw African-American people, you saw Greek people, all kinds of European languages asian people like it's just all over the place and it's really really cool it's a wonderful neighborhood i love new york i don't go to Asheville because i hate new york you know i love Asheville too but so why do you go to Asheville? the nature you gotta come man you know we got beautiful back deck looking at uh cedar trees you can walk up to the top of the mountain Everybody says hello to me. You know, it's great. I'll come. Everybody says hello to me in St. Pete already, too. So yeah, we, yeah. we're going to have to. It's different. It's... Yeah. We'll trade vacations. Maybe one day yeah. I'll be like you where I can afford homes in both places. But for now, I'm here. Oh, I never dreamed like I would be living like this. You know, but, I mean, it's thanks to my beautiful wife. We really worked together and we built a nice little life for ourselves. That's awesome. And part of that, I, I think I want to get into this story before we get into the random thought-provoking question, because you mentioned, you know, when I was driving for the rich guy, and I think that was one of the favorite stories you ever told me when we were in the coffee shop, because I think it's such a such a New York job to do, to be driving for an extremely rich guy. So tell the people, how rich was this man? Of course, he'll remain anonymous, but he, I would say he was a billionaire. And his wife had her own money. She was, you know, a high millionaire. It was it was wild. It was wild. I knew this world existed, but I, I was in it for 10 years, over 10 years. And remind me, how did you come into this job? It was actually a, through a friend of a friend who knew someone that married into this family. He married one of the sisters of my boss's wife. He married her sister. And then the, the driver they had retired. So he asked my friend if I knew anyone. And my friend asked me. And so I said, yeah, well, I'll meet the guy and see what it's about. And I met him and he liked me and I liked him. And uh, he said, come to work for me for a week, take a week's vacation from your job and come here and work and we'll see what happens. So I was, you know, I was like starstruck, man. All of a sudden I'm driving a 550 Mercedes. I got an American Express card with my name on it. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm like, this is like, all right. I mean, like, it was work. It, you know, I had to deal with these people. They're filthy rich. They're different. But they all liked me. I got along fine with them. I actually liked them, you know, most of the time. I don't like what they stand for, but on an individual basis, one-on-one, -on -one, they're beautiful people, but their lifestyle and their politics, uh, I could do without. And that was finally why I quit. 
I mean, I tried to leave on good terms. I think I did, uh, but I couldn't stand the, what they represented anymore. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. It one shows you that when you're filthy rich and to stay filthy rich, you're most likely going to have skeletons in the closet and maybe not the purest moral compass. And I'm curious, though, with all the luxuries that they had, the houses in the in the Hamptons and the, the crazy apartments in the city in the best neighborhoods. I heard this question on the radio the other day, the old, does money make you happy? Do you feel like that kind of money can make someone happy? Or does it then just corrupt you morally and at the end of the day, take away from your happiness? I think the latter is true. If you're a stable person to begin with and happy and you get lots of money, you can be happier, but it's not going to make you happy. Matter of fact, it can do just the opposite. Well, I will never mention names, so I, you know, I hate to like tell tales, but all the kids are on antidepressants and they're a mess. Right? Yeah. The money is just too much. Like I used to drive the kids to school. When I first got the job, they were in uh, grammar school, you know, and I would drive them to school every day. And the little boy had the rich guilt. Like he would say, could you park around the corner and let us off around the corner? I mean, they're good kids. They grew up, they went to college, but they're always depressed. They have every advantage in the world and they're not taking advantage of that. Kind of sad to see. Yeah, maybe because... They don't even know that they have an advantage because like you, you said, you know, when you grew up in the 500 square foot apartment with, with six people and you didn't know any better, they probably don't know how advantaged they are. Uh, they're, they're not dumb kids. They know they're just so damaged. Like they don't get the love they're raised by the maid. They don't get what they need when they're young. Like, so they don't excel. I mean, that's not all of them. I'm just saying the ones I've seen, they're never going to fail. You know, they're never going to fail because they're always bailed out and they can never do better than their parents. Right. You know, I mean, the American dream is you do better than your parents did. They can't do that. It's impossible. And they're never going to fail. They don't know what it's like to fail because there's always someone picking them up. Always. It's it's a whole different world. I don't understand why they're always depressed and stuff. I mean, I know I've heard stories like a kid jumping off the balcony on Park Avenue. So the money does not make you happy for a definite answer. But if you're a happy, decent person to begin with, it's like who said it? Aretha Franklin said, I've been rich and I've been poor rich is better <laughs> fair enough okay yeah i think i like that i like that perspective in all these filthy rich people apartments have you ever seen any exotic pets in there because i have asked myself so many times how no. many how many pet tigers live in new york city there must be a few oh there definitely is and i'm sure there's some in the hamptons but these people aren't about that My my boss was kind of a down-to-earth kind of billionaire, you know. He came from royalty in Persia. His uncle was like the treasurer of, of Iran under the Shah and stuff. 
They were Jewish, Persian Jewish. So he was comfortable with his wealth. So yeah. he was pretty down-to-earth guy. Like you'd see him in Tribeca, he'd have on sweatpants and a t-shirt, drinking coffee and smoking a cigarette. You want to give him a dollar. <laughs> Isn't that uh, fascinating, it, it, right? They weren't like that. They weren't about that. But they had, uh, you know, the stuff, you know, the houses and the cars and the Hermes furniture, the $250,000 couch. $250,000 couch. Did you hear me? <laughs> I heard you. So the the home that I'm in the process of buying is only going to be slightly more valuable than their couch. <laughs> than their couch. <laughs> I, I wasn't jealous. I really wasn't. I mean, people don't believe me, but I would not trade places with this guy. If they said you could switch lives with this guy, I'd say, no way. I'll stay right here. All right. I just needed to get that story out of the way. All right. Let's move into <laughs> our wild card here. So I know you've listened to a couple of episodes, but I'll tell you the categories again, where I have these random cards. So it's dreams, life lessons, exposed, courage, beliefs, and self-awareness. I think I'll pick self-awareness. All right. We love a self-awareness question around here. But that goes hand in hand with courage, you know. <laughs> that is true. There's a little mirror on here. So you got to be courageous and brave sometimes to pick up the mirror and look at yourself. Yes. Okay. Here comes your question, Mike. Who deserves credit in your life that you've been slow to acknowledge? Hmm. I would think my parents... Because as a kid, I was kind of wild and they tried to discipline me and I fought them constantly. And I thought they were, you know, not doing the right thing with me. But the life I live and coming out of it, they gave, they instilled in me a discipline. They instilled me a discipline to take care of myself, which a lot of my friends didn't have. You know, they come from broken homes and their father was a drunk. My parents weren't drunks or bad people they just you know they were old-fashioned and they had they didn't have ambition to like go out there and make some money and stuff they just catholic irish catholic first generation here like from ireland and my mother's family i think was from scotland so they were the first generation and uh They were just happy to be here, you know, they weren't ambitious and stuff. And I kind of resented that after a while that, you know, I couldn't get what I wanted. Like I couldn't have a pair of Converse because they cost too much and I didn't understand. And then with the discipline on top of that, come home at a certain time, don't do this. And I rebelled every step of the way. So we didn't have a good relationship. But as time, my mother died when I was young, 19. And then as time went on, I developed a good relationship with my dad. And then I realized one day that they're the reason I could uh, pull it together and pull myself up and uh, be a successful human being. Because I wasn't always the upstanding citizen you see today before you. (laughs) That wasn't always me. So your parents, do you know 
their exact history of how they came to New York? Did you ever do the, the tra did they come through Ellis Island and all that good stuff? Or? I know my father's, his father came through uh, Ellis Island as a older teenager. He came in like, I think in the 1890s sometime. And then my dad was born in uh, 1914. My, my grandfather came with nothing. My grandmother was living in Brooklyn, I think, from Ireland, and they met at a dance or something, and then it led to me. <laughs> My mother's family, I don't know much about. I just know they were from the Scottish. They were Scotch-Irish from Scotland. And my father, my grandfather was from Northern Ireland, which I was raised Catholic. And back in the day, it was Protestant Catholic. It was like there was a war going on, you know. Then I found out my grandfather was Protestant. He was from the North. But when he married my grandmother, she was Catholic. So they raised my father Catholic and he raised us Catholic. But I don't know much about exactly where they came from and how they lived. or I don't know anything about that. Irish people aren't kind of, they came here because it sucked there and they wanted to forget about it. <laughs> yes. I've said this so many times. So my, my ex-wife's dad is Irish as well. And he would go on about, you know, during the last few years with immigrants and crises and this and that he would go on and be like oh, all these dirty immigrants and i'm like oh, did, did you forget that your parents were dirty immigrants at some point like, dude like is that dude. so hard to wrap your mind around so it you know it, it's so funny because those are the people often in this country with irish catholic backgrounds who are not that far removed from their parents or grandparents being dirty immigrants who will be the most protective over their country and the most conservative and the most racist. So it's just so fascinating to me. You're very smart to notice that. But it's an Anglo thing. I don't know what it, it's just it's promoted by the man. I know that sounds like a conspiracy theory or something. It's 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 not them not making plans in some room somewhere. It's just the way things are. You know, the next group is fighting for jobs. That's what it's all about. Like when the Irish were here, the blacks all came from down south and then they were fighting for jobs. So of course they hated each other. It, it's too deep to even discuss. Yeah. You know, socio <laughs> it's deep in there. Okay, tell me more about your parents, though. So do you know how they met when they were young? Yeah, my mother came from a big family. She had five brothers and a sister. I think she was the oldest. So of course, she had to take care of the kids. So she didn't have time for dating and all that. So that she was getting into her late 20s. And my dad was up in the Bronx. And he was in his late 20s. And, you know, back then, you're not married. So someone hooked them up. And then they just, legend has it, their first date was at Yankee Stadium. And Babe Ruth hit a home run to win the game in the last inning. You know, that's what my, the story my dad told. I mean, even if it's not true, just the story of them having their first date at, at Yankee Stadium and Babe Ruth is hitting a home run and it's an unforgettable day. 
let's just run with it. Yeah, I I always have. Yeah, my dad did. <laughs> I believe it. I actually believe it. How old were you when your dad passed away? Oh, he just passed away in 2002. And that's a little romantic story. My dad still lived in the building on Perry Street. And my wife, now Beth, lived upstairs. And I had gotten divorced. And I was, you know, dating different women and stuff, which my dad didn't approve of. And he said, oh, there's a nice woman upstairs. I, I think she broke up with her boyfriend. You know, my dad was like the mayor of the neighborhood. So I never really got to meet her. And then my dad was getting old and he had given her the keys to the apartment. So one time I'm visiting my dad when he, he just got back from the hospital and I'm in the living room with him and I hear the door opening and I go to the door. I didn't know someone had the keys and, and there she is. So my dad introduced us and of course, almost instantly I asked her out and she kind of told me no, but then I was like, come on, just to thank you, blah, 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 blah. And then she she was a little hesitant. She was scarred. She was in her 40s and fed up with men and, you know, whatever. So I finally broke down the wall and then fell in love. But my dad introduced me and he, after that day, he died maybe three, four months later. And I, he set me up and then he left. So not only do you have to give your parents credit for instilling the discipline and the life skills to now be a law-abiding citizen, but also for meeting your lovely wife. Yes. Oh, my dad gets 100% credit for that. So you and your dad had sort of made peace with, you know, maybe not being so connected during your childhood when they were tough on you by the time he passed away. Did you and your mother, when, you know, she passed away while you were still a young rebel, did you have a moment of closure with her and a moment of peace before no, she passed away? No, it, it's a story I've heard in my life, but I've learned to deal with it. That's how I got better. I was in a lot of trouble in the neighborhood and I went to Florida. I had a friend there on the bar and I was bartending at his bar. I guess I was... 19 or I might have been 20 by then I was 20 and then when I was in Florida a few months my mother passed away and she was uh worried about me I'm sure you know so I always kind of like blame myself for that and years later when my dad got older and I we had a relationship I used to bring my daughter over his house cook him dinner you know we had a real good relationship and he said something made me cry. He said, oh, I wish your mother could have seen that everything worked out all right for you. Aww. She never got to meet my daughter. You know, it, it was it was something to deal with in my life. Years of 12-step uh, work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good with it now, you know. I'm good with it. Part how, of my story. How did she pass away so young? She was just walking down the street and had a stroke wow. on Hudson Street in Granite Village outside the neighborhood cleaners. And I knew the dry cleaner. We used to smoke pot together and stuff. And uh, he came out and tried to help her, but she went quick. I 61 years old. They had me late in life. I was the youngest of four. So they were in their 40s when they had me. 
Got you. So in your young 19-year-old brain, you're like, you know, had she not been so worried about me and not so stressed out, maybe she wouldn't have had a stroke and all of that. That was kind of the story you were telling yourself. Yeah. And it's not really true because she had high blood pressure. She wouldn't take her medicine. She kept eating Lay's potato chips. And I guess the worrying didn't help on top of that. But as a kid, I was dumb as a rock. I went through life, you know, reacting to life, not not making a plan or anything, just reacting to whatever happened to me. So I was kind of not aware. But that hit me hard. And But it took me another 20 years to straighten out. Like I went through my burying that at the bar or whatever. I was going to say, you mentioned the 12 steps. So it sounds like... Instead of going to therapy, you went to the bar to deal with it. Yes. Yes. I medicated myself. (laughs) And it worked for a long time. And then it stopped working. You know, it just, I was just getting, I was just more and more depressed, suicidal, you know, in the dark hole. It's bad enough being depressed and feeling down when you're sober and you're capable but when you're drinking and doing blow and you're depressed it's not a good place to be but i had a moment of clarity (laughs) yeah tell me was there that distinct is this like a, a coming to jesus moment that you'll remember for the rest of your life where you know exactly when the switch kind of flipped where you were like okay this is it i gotta make a change yeah kind of not that dramatic but i had a daughter who just got into stuyvesant high school wow which is top shelf i had no money i mean my daughter loved me i would pick her up on the weekends and you know we'd hang out a little and i was like you know always high and i was the clown so you know we got along great you know i was starting to think i gotta do something here i got a smart kid He's going to, you know, need things. <laughs> and then one morning I, I went on a particularly heavy run for a few days with blow and drinking. And I just woke up one morning and felt like horrible, just horrible, suicidal. I, I said, I'm going to go to a AA meeting. Someone had told me about it. Someone had, you know, a little birdie had whispered in my ear about it months before. And so then I couldn't go that day. I just was so sick. I couldn't get out of bed. But uh, the next day I went to a meeting and I haven't had a drink or I must say the last five or six years I've been smoking pot again because pain everywhere and, you know, whatever. But I haven't had a drink or a heavy drug in, since 1995. So yeah. the minute you went to your, I'm sure it wasn't a, a all linear but basically, from the the moment you made up your mind that you're going to go to an AA meeting, you, you've never looked back. Right. It's been hard times. I've gotten depressed sober in the beginning. You know, it hasn't been. There was no pink cloud, as they say. You know, I had a black cloud for a while. The hardest thing is admitting is, is self-awareness. Years later at a yoga center, I seen written on the wall, self-awareness without judgment. That's when you've arrived. When you can have self-awareness without judgment, 
you have arrived, you're, you're Zen. It's almost impossible because you're always judging yourself. But it, it was it was a long road to like get sober. And um, I met some wonderful people along the way, seen some tragedies along the way. You know, not everyone makes it. Best decision I ever made. And they told me the first guy that took me under his wing, big uh, Irish guy, like, you know, knew my story. I like, kind of grew up the same. And he said, if you do this to the best of your ability, no one's perfect. You can't do 12-step program perfect. You do it the best you can. Your, your life will be beyond your wildest dreams. And it has been. You know, he wasn't lying. I worked for the billionaire. I met wonderful people like you. I have for friends now. Come on. And I got a place in Asheville. I got a beautiful wife who loves me. If you would have said when I was 35 years old that my life was going to be great at this age, I would have said, I'm not even going to be alive then. Yeah. So it's been a long uh been a long, strange trip to quote the dead there. <laughs> so when you no longer had things to numb you when you would fall into a sadness or a depression, what were some of the ways you came up with to get yourself out of it and become happy again? Having a network of people I could call to tell them I wasn't feeling good and let's go have coffee or whatever. Wonderful people I met that would drop what they were doing and come, you know, and exercise. I really, I was an animal. I guess I should show you a picture. When I was sober 10 years, I was like 175 pounds of muscle. I, I was at the gym all the time, like, you know, and playing basketball, riding my bike. It was better than, I went the route, I went to therapy, I took some drugs that just made me shake. And, you know, I tried, like, that wasn't working for me at all. Like, you know, exercise worked. But exercise and socializing, the two things that worked for me. I mean, it doesn't always have to be complicated, right? Just... No, no. Another thing, I they told me that, The way we are when we have addictions and stuff, we can complicate the inside of an empty paper bag. <laughs> Make it complicated. <laughs> It's not that complicated. You call a friend when you're feeling down and when you need to get yeah. out, of your, out of your head, you go get some movement and get into your body. And, and eat right. Try to eat right anyway. It's hard when you got a job to eat right. I know. I had a job for many years. But as best you can, you try to eat healthy. Okay. Those are the three simple secrets to happiness with Mike from New York. <laughs> <laughs> call, call your friends, exercise, and eat right. There you go. Yeah. You have to have a few friends to call. <laughs> You don't know how grateful I am for the coffee shop. It's just a lot of people I grew up with are all dead or whatever. My old friends, are, I don't have any really. I have a couple of 12-step friends that I've kept over the years, but I've made a ton of young friends who keep me young, you know, and they've accepted me without judgment, really, you know. 
it, it's cool. It's cool. I think like I'm you said. I'm that you asked me to be on your podcast. Okay. Well, for, <laughs> first of all, just listening to your New York accent that I will not even try to imitate. It's, it's such a treat because it's almost, if, if I didn't know you in real life and hadn't heard you in person, it would almost sound like a parody of someone trying to sound like they're from New York. And, but that's just, so that's one. So the entertainment value is already high. And then, like I said, I always just enjoyed talking to you and listening to your stories. And I think it's important to listen to people with more life experience, different life experience, because if you're always in your bubble and just talk to people your age or that, you know, worry about the same thing that you worry about, you never expand your horizon. So I'm grateful that you're here. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. I've always had older, an older friend, an older man. Now I'm getting old. It's hard to get it all. <laughs> my my last one just died at 70, 96 years old. Harry Wimmer, he just passed away last year. He was like, he taught me so much about life. So now I need another 85-year-old friend. <laughs> or you just need to step into the role of teacher now that you're approaching. Yeah, I, I try to like slap these kids into reality. <laughs> I know you were giving me a hard time when I was like, oh, I'm going to move away and I'm going to be happier. And you're like, you know, wherever you go, there you are. So so far, I'm proving you wrong, but let's see. Oh. You were never a Debbie Downer to begin with. I was always happy to see you in the morning, too. Yeah. And yeah. you crazy little dog. Yes. <laughs> yes, Edith. Rest in peace. Yeah, she she was a yeah, crazy. She was a trip. But you did accept her <laughs> as she was, too. So that was appreciated. Because yeah. she, was, she was tough to love, but you found a way to love her. So <laughs> that was nice of you. Back to the rich guy. You know what he told me after about six months, which was probably one of the best things anyone ever told me. He goes, you don't judge people. And I didn't judge him for being rich. And he noticed it. I don't judge people I meet or dogs. There you go. <laughs> Everybody's got their story. Yes. Well, that's interesting, right? Coming from a super rich guy that he still had some sort of insight and appreciation for, because I think at the end of the day, we are all the same and that we want to feel connected and we want to be liked and we don't want to be judged. So the fact that that's what he appreciated about you, that you didn't judge him. Yeah. I think, I think that's kind of special. I, and cause when you judge, it leads to jealousy and stuff like that, I guess, or hate. So better not to go there. Yes. So now that we've taken this journey, is there anything else that needs to uh, be spoken out about whatever we just talked about that you want to share? I don't know. I just want to say again how grateful I am that we are friends and seem to be growing that friendship. And I'm going to send you a Irish band playlist for St. Patrick's Day. Everybody needs to know this. You sent me the best playlist for my drive down to New York. 
I've been listening to the BB King song that it starts with up and down oh. the, the, the better not look down. It's, it's such an uplifting song. So that's kind of been my anthem lately. So thank you for that. But I do have one final question for you that I ask all my guests to close each episode. And that question is, what is your greatest gift to the world? My greatest gift to the world. Um, I could say something silly, like I raised a very productive daughter. <laughs> But I think the way I deal with people, that I, I try to be open and nice and I meet beautiful people that way. And I, I have a talent to break down barriers, like, I live in an apartment building, a 15-story apartment building. There's some wackadoos in the building, you know. There's hoarders. There's, you know, it's a big building in a big complex. The people that don't talk to anyone, they talk to me. So I feel that's that's a, a great gift I have. Some Maybe. lonely old person that don't talk to anyone, I can get them to talk to me. That's all I got. <laughs> I, I think that's wonderful. And maybe like the super rich guy, they can all feel that you're not judging them. And maybe I'm that's... Not. I know they weren't always this old, crazy person. <laughs> Or whatever they are. Like, they weren't always like that. I have definitely received that gift. Not that I don't talk to anyone else, but <laughs> I always enjoy talking to you. And I think that is a wonderful gift. And I hope you keep sharing it with the world for many moons to come. I'm going to give it a shot. One day at a time, as they say. <laughs> All right. I think we made it to the end of the episode. Thank you again. You're this, the best. This was like five minutes. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. It was fun. Oh, hey, it's me again. I quickly wanted to share my six key takeaways, flashpoints, tweetable moments, or whatever you want to call them. Number one, it's hard to be a saint in the city. I just love that quote. Number two, money definitely does not make you happy, but if you're already stable and happy, it can make you happier. Number three, sometimes the very thing that we fight our parents on the most might just save our life down the road. Number four, Getting yourself out of a bad spot doesn't always have to be complicated. Exercising, socializing, and eating healthy are always good strategies. Number five, we've made it to the promised land when we are able to have self-awareness without judgment. It's almost impossible to not judge ourselves, but we should give it our best shot. And number six, speaking of judgment, one of the greatest gifts you can give to people is to not judge them. And that's all I got. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to help get it to more listeners, please share it with a friend or two or three, leave a five-star rating, hit the follow or subscribe button. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, the ultimate support would be to leave some kind words and a written review. Thanks again for being here. Talk to you next time. 